Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today's episode 221 and we're going to be interviewing Clarissa. How are you doing, Clarissa? I'm good. Thanks for having me here today. I'm excited to have you. We were just chatting. So we're going to be talking about food addiction today, huh? Absolutely. Well, a food addiction along with many other addictions. Oh, okay. So you were, you were, you had fun like the rest of us, garbage yeah. can. Story of cross addiction, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So let's hear about it. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. How was that? Okay. Well, I came from a very privileged home. You know, um, my father was a physician, mom was nurse. And, you know, I went to Christian school. Uh, We had, I had lots of friends, you know, it was definitely a very happy childhood. Um, I was very athletic, involved in lots of sports. And so, you know, I don't really have a ton of memories from that time in regards to, you know, um, you know, I, I did certainly always feel like I just never really fit in. And I was always worried about how I looked like those were some definite dominating thoughts. Um, and then the first actually experience I had with substances was in in grade eight. And I went to, um, Bible, like a kind of youth group Bible camp. And we, someone brought alcohol and, and drugs. Cause I mean, that's what youth groups do. And it was my first time experiencing like drinking and, uh, smoking marijuana. And one more and time. How old were you at this time? I was in grade eight. So probably around 13, okay. 14 years old. And so I think I, had a sip of peach schnapps and then I drank the whole bottle and uh you know the uh whoever was helping kind of lead this retreat found me and a bunch of my friends in the shower stall passed out we'd all been vomiting um and I don't really remember anything from that and so of course my parents came pick me up and it was the whole like you know, now I got kicked out of youth group and some of my friends got their stomach pumped but my punishment was like have the hangover and but sure enough I was like oh I never want to do that again um you know it it definitely wasn't a super positive first experience but you know I it I don't ha- I don't recall having that moment of being like oh this is it this is the answer this is what I've been looking for however that did happen later on for me so you know I went to um a private well, real school quick. I noticed yep. one thing you said that I hear a lot is that you always felt different. Yeah. I felt the same way. I always just felt like I'm not like you guys. You, you guys are something else. Like I, I wonder if everyone feels that way, but I do hear it a lot from addicts. Yeah. No, and I hear it from a lot of individuals that I work with too, is that they just never really felt like they fit in and they really and felt. The time we feel like we fit in is when we finally did the drugs. Right. 
Right. And that, and that was definitely more my high school experience is, you know, showing up to like a party or whatever it was. I, I just always felt, um, very anxious, very nervous, didn't know what I would say. And, you know, alcohol kind of gave me that courage to, uh, be able to talk to the boys that were, that I was attracted to, or seem really cool. And I was just fortunate, um, that I, had my, I did have some grade school friends that, you know, we got into a little bit of trouble with. And so my parents were like, oh, you need to go to private school. Little did they know I was a bit of the ringleader of us getting into trouble. And so I just went to a private school, which then people had more money to do bad things. Um, but, you know, it, it was a pretty positive experience as well. I was still really athletic there. And, um, but I always did have like some very serious body image issues at that time. So then, you know, first year university, I went, what from, kind of body issues, what, what would you say, what kind of things were running through your mind? Uh, constantly comparing my body to other people, um, always trying to restrict, um, doing a little bit of over-exercising. It was always about trying to be thin or, you think you it's know, more prevalent in women? Oh, for sure. I think there's a lot of more societal pressure on women to, to look a certain Society's way. harder on women. Yeah. And, uh, and a, a lot of my friends just seem to be thin naturally. And, and now with what I know, you know, we all have kind of a body set point and some of us just tend to be more muscly and that it, it's not like I, I look back on those pictures now, there's nothing wrong with me, but yeah. you know, I just had this distorted image of myself and uh always just trying to change myself to fit in and and be like everyone else so when I went from a school of 80 people to University of Toronto um with like 60,000 people now it was like the pressure was just amplified and uh one of my call it or the girl who I shared my dorm room with said to me, you know, it would be great if we could wear the same size pants. And she was a tiny little thin girl. And so all I heard was I need to lose weight. And so I just stopped eating. And so at that point, um, you know, very quickly, I went down to around 80 pounds leaving school. How tall are you? Uh, five, three. So, I mean, very underweight. It was definitely anorexia. And, um, how much do you think a person that's five foot three should weigh like 110 pounds probably, right? Oh yeah. At least 115 pounds, 115. um, for sure. And so it was, you know, and my parents could see what was happening. They didn't really know what to do. So, uh, I went and got some eating disorder treatment, um, really just like outpatient and, you know, I just said like, I'll go, I'll eat, start eating food if I don't have to go to like an inpatient treatment center. And I just decided couldn't go back to UFT. And so I went to college and I went to college for hotel and restaurant at that time. So then it was just like party central. So I started drinking and didn't really care about as much of what I was eating and yeah, for, for that whole college experience, there was just a lot of wild times. Um, but what kind of drugs were you, what kind of drugs were you exposed to during college? 
Uh, you know, like cocaine, um, probably a little bit of ecstasy and, and alcohol at the time, um, was the most dominant things that were around. So those were the typical things that I think most of us were using at that, at that period in my life, or at least the group that I hung out with. And then I got my diploma there and went to a university to get a bachelor of commerce degree in hotel and food. And I had to like, it wasn't as party central anymore. It was much more serious. Um, but, you know, always still kind of eating issues in there and I would drink. Um, and I mean, what kind had, of eating issues describe a little bit. So at that period, it really, I had kind of discovered bulimia. And so I could eat, um, and drink and then just throw it all up. And that, I used to have bulimia. Yeah. And so it was, you know, it was my new little secret that I, my secret to success that would keep me at a certain weight and uh, nobody, nobody knew at that time that this is just something I was doing all the time. And I was always trying to figure out where I could go and how I could get rid of the food. And I would be secretly like binging on food and getting rid of it. And I lived in a house with eight people and, you know, it was definitely like a party central house, but uh, everyone was just involved in their own lives. So it was easy to get away with. And, you know, at this time, I also started working in the a restaurant industry. So I had a full-time job, was in school, you know, I was just, you know, basically living my best life. Um, but nobody would have known from the outside that so much was going on. And uh, so got my degree there, got a great job at a private golf club where I met people who were just developing this new franchise called Boston Pizza. And so I went there as general manager, again, still like having binge drinking, eating issues, but then I started to take my career a little bit more seriously. Um, and, but then workaholism came into play. So I just worked and. Isn't drank. it amazing how we can make anything an addiction? Like that, <laughs> that's our specialty. An addict specialty is do choose something and go overboard. Exactly. And so that was like the next pretty much three years was running the restaurant, uh, you know, drinking all my days off, you know, that's what it was because all the people and, and it doesn't seem completely abnormal when everyone you work with is doing the same things as you. And so yeah. it's probably why I was drawn to that field. On a day off when you decided you were drinking, what time would you start drinking? Oh, well, we would just meet at the bar, like when it opened. So okay. what time would that be like? early 10, afternoon yeah 10 a.m oh like, 10 a.m oh yeah okay. and you know during the summer I'd work at resorts and and it would be like as soon as we opened our eyes it was like day off like you know go water skiing whatever just like it was all about this is how you have a good time this is how you spend your day off and when that's what we're surrounded with it seems perfectly normal so you don't question your own relationship with these substances yeah so it wasn't really until and i i would have throughout that period lots of times where i would black out uh you know over drink and i i would be like oh like and drive you know definitely some not some behavior i'm not proud of today um, but you know, it certainly caught up with me. I, I then had the opportunity at this point, my, um, 
I had met my partner had been a corporate trainer for Boston Pizza and I we had gotten married we had the opportunity to become franchisees so we now um, had an opportunity to have a new location of a restaurant so I went there as general manager and then you know again working too much restricting at this point I'd also discovered laxatives um, as a way because now I was I couldn't really be bulimic anymore. So it was the new way to get. Why couldn't of, you be bulimic anymore? Because where the bathroom was located in mm. the restaurant, it was right around the kitchen. And, you know, I was at work pretty much now that I was the owner operator. I was at work from like pretty much 6 a.m. in the morning till it was a bar like 2 a.m. at night. So, oh, my God. It was, yeah, it's, it's, they sell it like this is very glamorized, great position. And, you know, at 25, it's amazing to be an owner operator of a restaurant. But then when you figure out the hours you work and like that, all of it, I think you make like, and your dishwasher calls in sick, you end up washing dishes (laughs) on a Friday night, everyone's going to parties and they call in sick. Right. So then you're just basically working all the time. So yeah, I'm sure there was a level of exhaustion, but you know, I'm, I'm still feeling at this moment that like life is great. Things are good now. Like, you know, it was my fiance's birthday and, um, I went to the bar. I had, I think two doubles and I then drove, I I was bringing a pizza home to my dad and uh that like i don't recall anything from this the police report said that i swerved to avoid potentially i swerved to avoid hitting a cat because they found this cat but my car went off the road um flipped upside down a fence post went through my windshield through my arm oh my god like if you can see from here to here that was my windshield and it was less than a millimeter on each side of my carotid artery so it was just very fortunate a volunteer off-duty firefighter came upon the scene and knew what to do with my neck and um i was at the hamilton general hospital within probably 15 minutes of the trauma happening. And again, uh, fortunate, unfortunate, there had just been a major trauma that had come in before me. And so all of the people that needed to be there to do the operation and the surgery uh, were there as well. And so I was in a coma, medically induced coma there for a week. And then I was in ICU for some time after that. And again, you know, I really woke up and from that and just didn't really, wasn't really ready to examine that had my drinking been this, like I was very happy to be alive. I remember one physician questioning my out the alcohol content, um, and saying like, you know, you should be charged for this. And the police came and they had said like, what do you remember? But I didn't remember anything. I got charged with like reckless driving. Um, but I got a lawyer that got me off and, you know, really the, at that point I was just focused on my physical recovery because, uh, I had broken my arm in 10 places and I also had this restaurant I had to run. So 
recovery from that really looked like they basically had to heal my arm like this. And then like they would put it in this machine that would like move the rotation. And my physiotherapist would like lie on top of me and like force my arm because I had no movement in it whatsoever. And because of the immense amount of pain I was in, they gave me, um, they actually gave me Tylenol three at first, uh, but I had an allergic reaction to the codeine. So then I was prescribed Percocet. And at this time, uh -huh. this is circa like 2005, this pre-opioid uh, crisis, you know, nobody really said to me, there's a danger of being addicted. I think at that time, it was really physicians were, if they weren't giving these pills out to people who were in pain, they were being criticized of, again, dad was a doctor, mom's a nurse. Nobody said, we need to be really mindful of these pills and, and how long you're on them. And there's a lot of deception going on. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you already know the whole uh, Sackler family and their sales pitch that only 1% get addicted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which like we have opiate receptors in our brain of everybody gets addicted. Like a hundred percent people pretty much get addicted. Anybody that's on the long term will develop a physical dependence upon it. Yeah, a physical dependence. And that's exactly what it was. But I had no idea. And, and it was just so I was still going on with my life. I went back to work six months later, uh, you know, not drinking because now I'm on these medications, but these medications took away my appetite. So this oh. felt like the most magical pill I'd ever been on. Um, so I was then, you know, I got to a point where um, everything was, you know, going really well. And then I started to notice that there was, I was getting a wound showing up where they had done the surgery and they had left dirt in the wound. So they had to go back in because now I had a metal um rod in my arm and they had to take that out and I had to heal all over again, which meant I needed to be on these pain medications for another um, eight months. So now we're talking like a year and eight months. And, and so then after that healing period, you know, I've already gotten married. Um, you know, this is my restaurant life. Now I'm starting to realize I'm physically dependent on these pills. And that's where I was starting to panic. So I started cutting the pills. I started drinking um, to like wean off the pills because I knew I couldn't get any more pills. And so eventually it got to where I was became physically dependent on alcohol as well as the medications. So you were so, trying to wean yourself off the Percocet by using booze. Alcohol. This is amazing. I was the op. I weaned myself off of alcohol by using uh, Adderall and Klonopin. <laughs> so my idea, I remember I used to tell my ex-girlfriend, I'm sober now. But meanwhile, all I did was start snorting Klonopin and Adderall instead of doing the booze. Right, exactly. I, like, I think we think so we're hard. pharmacists, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we do, street-side pharmacists. <laughs> It is so true. And so what happened for me was I had a conference in California um, for the restaurant. And I, at this point I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to get alcohol or pills on this trip. So I'll just stop cold Turkey. And uh, at that point it was, I went into, you know, 10 days of 
hallucinations. Um, I never made it to California. I actually ended up at my father's hospital um, in emergency psychiatry. And, you know, I, I recall them just trying to, I hadn't slept for like five days. They were just trying to give me some, some sleeping pills. And I thought they were doing some kind of study on me. I was going around, handing around like Boston pizza coupons to people saying, come try a pizza. And my parents are just like devastated. And again, you know, it, for there, it was really like, okay, like, now, now I have to admit I'm an alcoholic. And so that was really when I first admitted that, um, you know, I said it out loud, I'm an alcoholic. And then I wish I took it back right <laughs> after the words came out of my mouth, but there was no, there was nothing else. I, I had tapped out all of my, my own personal strategies at that point. So, you know, at that point I separated from my husband. I really just didn't, didn't, tap into AA or anything at that point, I just went up North, um, to my cottage and did, you know, six months of like trying to work on myself, reading books about addiction. And, but then it didn't seem so bad. Like, you know, obviously because I'd taken away all the main stressors, I wasn't working or any of that. And so I went back and, uh, we, at that point, once I admitted I was an alcoholic and, you know, we decided to sell the restaurant and I decided to, I was going, driving by a job fair. And I think there was a Lowe's was opening in Canada. And I went in and there was, had been a gentleman who was the assistant manager and he was, I'd worked in the restaurant industry and he was like, oh, you'd be great in our install office. So that I was like, great, there's no alcohol here. Cause this was my only skill at the time was really in the restaurant industry. And at this point I knew I couldn't go back. So my husband at the time, we, we were trying to still work things out. And, and so he still worked for Boston pizza and I worked at Lowe's and, and, you know, really I managed my sobriety just by staying busy. Um, at that point. And again, not really saw, seeking any treatment for it, but we had his Christmas party and, and I did, I snuck booze there. And that was like really the first time that I started to drink again. And then from there, it was like, I started to binge drink again. And so I actually um, also at that time started to have an affair and ended up meeting um, this person that worked through Lowe's at uh, a park. And because I was really nervous, it was going to be like our first physical interaction. It was kind of an emotional affair. I drank a whole bottle of vodka before... Um, he showed up. And so when he got there, I was already passed out in my car and, um, he just left me in the car. And I guess it was like the middle of the day. So a bunch of people showed up at the, uh, to play softball. And I guess that maybe that woke me up and I got out of the back seat of my car into the front seat of my car and fell asleep again. And somebody witnessed that and called the police. And so that was my first DUI. And uh, behind the wheel, sleeping or not. Yep. And so that, that sucks. Yep. It was. I it had a was, DUI also, but I crashed my car drunk. I deserved it. Every last bit of it. 
Well, I at at the time I I believe these DUIs actually saved my life. Like, and obviously by DUIs, it wasn't the only one. Um, but that one was the first one that kind of started me saying like, okay, what's going on? Like, I maybe need to take this a little bit more seriously because now it's inconveniencing my life. Right. And before it wasn't really, I mean, disastrous things were happening, but I still kind of felt like I had it together, but that was when I lost my independence. And that is when I was like, okay, I need to do something. And so I went to my first treatment center at 30 Um, however, there was still some binge drinking in there. And, and before I went, um, I think probably just dealing with the fact that I, now I couldn't do anything. I was probably like depressed and I went to see a psychiatrist. Cause again, I think my parents, as much as they are physicians, they, they as well were in a bit of denial about my addiction and, and wanted it to be something else. You know, if we binge drinking can often present as like mania. And so next thing it was like, Oh, diagnosis of bipolar, which is, Oh, and and I wanted it to be bipolar so that I could still potentially drink again one day. Um, but I, so I was on lithium for a bit when I got to my first treatment center and, you know, but after having that assessment there, it was really like bipolar is not your thing. Addiction is. And so interestingly enough at this program, they treated like PTSD. They also treated eating disorders. And it was there that I was really like, Oh, like very, very fascinated by the eating disorder uh, recovery program. But you know, it's where I first was introduced to AA. I was first introduced to like treatment recovery. And I kind of got, I think I started to really understand that this is what was going on for me and I needed to figure it out. So leaving treatment, I went back to my job, divorced my husband and I decided to go to school for addictions and mental health. And so I did about a, a three-year program and then shifted from working at Lowe's to working in um, a shelter system, which was with with men who were, you know, homeless, um, maybe pre-treatment and post-treatment, just trying to get recovery. So, you know, life was okay, but I still never felt like solidly sober. It was always like, I just knew there was going to be an impulsive compulsive moment where I was going to pick up. And I just hoped nothing terrible was going to happen because the, the one thing I guess I neglected to mention is during my car uh, car accident, I had sustained a major head injury. Um, It was a Glasgow coma scale of eight. So it essentially like anybody with that would be paralyzed and, and, you know, predominantly they shouldn't really be walking out of the hospital or okay to, to continue on with life. It should be very, you know, um, it should, they may need like supports in their life to be able to just go on with normal life. So I was extremely fortunate, but never really, like I did notice it was harder in school to focus and concentrate. Um, but you know, I just figured out ways to navigate around that. So 
still some of the binge drinking going on. Um, I got an opportunity to work at a youth shelter um, and open up a treatment program there. So I was working with like 16 to 21 year olds, really just assessing them for alcohol, drug, substance use. And we would like put them on night watch. So now I was working nights. I decided to go back to school for social work. So I'm doing full-time school and working nights and creating this program for um, addiction and youth. But meanwhile, still the binge drinking has come back and it's starting to get out of control. Uh, so I get to a point where I now have to, to go to treatment again, because now, now I'm starting to get scared. So I had gotten a bit of a settlement, um, from the car accident. So I decided to apply that money to this, the best private treatment center that was going to fix me. And so I went there and, you know, I, I always was the person that went to treatment sober. Like I never like me too. I, I only went once, but I yeah. was the guy who came in, but they, their, their tests were wrong. Cause I literally <laughs> smoked, I smoked weed that day. And they said that yeah. I, I came back clean. So that was wrong. Really? I even said to the guy, I go, it's not possible. I'm like, I'm being honest with you. I just smoked weed before I left the hat like a couple hours ago. <laughs> but I, I did a few shots that day just to maintain. Cause I spent yeah. the day with my mom. I did one last shot in front of my mom at dinner, but then I ate a huge burrito. So it must've absorbed everything. By the time I got the rehab, I was blown to zero. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, I just really wanted to, to, to get fixed. Like I wanted, and I was afraid they weren't going to, they wouldn't accept me if I came and messed up. But then when I was there, I saw all the people coming in, everybody gets loaded before they come in. It looked like one last hurrah. Yeah. And that's, that's usually it. Um, so like they, I would go to the, to the detox area where you have to stay and I'll be like, so bored. Cause I'm like, Hey, I just want to get to treatment. Let's go. Um, so I mean, treatment always went well. I love treatment. I, you know, it was a time when I could talk about myself, all my life stressors, were out of the picture. I got to focus on whatever I wanted to do. Um, so, you know, I always did well in treatment. I always left treatment feeling very positive, but it still was never a solution. And, and through all of this time, I, I should also mention that like, basically once I was 19 and with the anorexia, I grew up during that low fat area. So I stopped eating fat because I was very fat phobic. So from 19 to 36, I didn't consume any fat whatsoever. Like my only condiment was mustard. And, and I now know the brain is 60% fat and it actually needs us to consume from fat, some fat in order for it to be able to be functional. So <clears throat> probably not my best choice uh, for cognitive clarity, but you know, it's all a learning experience. Yes, it so, is. So again, it was, I just went back, did my same old thing, got great jobs. You know, I was working again. I got hired to do an addiction position, working with an assertive community treatment team, um, moved to a new area 
And again, the binge drinking showed up and I, you know, I would be going, I went to AA, I went to women for sobriety. I studied addiction. I studied social work. I worked in the field. I went to meetings. I was doing all these things and, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I just didn't understand why, um, you know, I, I never asked for help. That is definitely one thing that I never reached out before I went and picked up anything. Um, but I, I also never really felt like I super planned things. It just really was like a very, either emotional, there was some kind of level of physiological arousal and I just grabbed booze. Um, so at that last job, I had been, I think it was like one of my last days working there and somebody had gifted me a bottle of alcohol and I drank it and then I drove and I got pulled over and I had just gotten a pardon about maybe two weeks earlier from my last DUI charge. So this was, you get out of one and right into another. Absolutely. And so, cause it had been 10 years between the two incidents. And so then I lost my license for three years. And, um, and at that point, then I was like, okay, private treatment center didn't work. I'm going to go to this free treatment place in Toronto. And so I went there and you know, the medical director came in, I was kind of just like spewing my story. And she turned around to me and she said, have you ever heard about food addiction? And I was like, no, uh, tell me more. And so then she just handed me this book and the book was called Food Junkies. And it was like, I read that book in treatment and that was my entire life story that it was always about you know, the food that I was eating and the food problems I was having and how certain foods uh, create dopamine response in the brain. And that I just needed to start consuming some fats again, I started needing to eat regular meals. Um, and so I was I was very excited about this. And, and so then I decided that, hey, you know, this is something I want to learn more about. I found a program in Iceland uh, based out of Iceland. And I went there for what they called an intensive where there was individuals going into treatment. I was learning about how to help people in treatment, but it, but what it ended up being was treatment for me. And it just was very interesting because they had kind of a prescribed food plan, um, which was about a thousand percent more food than I'd ever allowed myself to eat in one sitting. And I just remember sitting there like, you know, crying and eating this food, feeling like I, I, I had to, because I was like going to be the professional and I didn't want to, I it started to trigger the bulimia because I was eating more food than I was used to, but it was like this crazy, I like snow and ice storm in Iceland. So I couldn't have even left the whole program if I wanted to. And I just sat with that uncomfortability for that first night and said, you know, it's only five days. I can do this. And like by day three, it was like the whole world had been in black and white. And all of a sudden I could see things in color. Like I, my energy changed. 
my thoughts changed. Um, this food really acted as medicine for me. So I finished that program. I, you know, really stopped having any cravings for alcohol and went back and started private practice working with food addiction. And so that is pretty much where my story is now. And, and I ended up, um, after I got training there, I then went and did another program based out of uh, Sweden, which was holistic medicine for addiction. And I reached out after completing that to that physician at, who is the medical director at Renaissance. And I said, do you want to start a podcast together? And so she said, yes. So now I work with her on the Food Junkies podcast. She, I'm a co-host with her. And we are, I'm also on a team that is working towards getting food addiction in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual and the International Classification of Diseases for the World Health Organization. That would so, be amazing. Good for you. Sounds yeah. like you're doing a lot of good things. So let's talk about your podcast real quick. So it said it's called Food Junkies. Yeah. And so um, tell me about it. What do you guys talk about? So we just talk about um, basically we try to educate listeners on what food addiction is. It's not all foods. Um, you know, it's, it's these ultra processed foods that we really want to draw attention to if people feel or experience a loss of control around these foods we just really want them to know that that's why they were created they were scientifically created for us to bet you can't eat just one right as the slogans say yeah. uh they, they they've figured out bliss point they know the perfect combination of salt sugar fat where you take it and you immediately want more and we know these ultra processed foods override our hunger and satiety hormones and so that I, I really believe these ultra processed foods have led to nutrient deficiencies. And when we've been in substance use for so many years, we really need to refeed ourselves with nutrient dense foods in order to heal the brain, because this is where addiction lives. And then if we, we can start like to cognitively assess and make better choices about the rest of our life. So I, I really, I, I still sometimes work with people who struggle with alcohol and, and food is one of the, the treatments that I implement as well as like, you know, 12 step community supports and, and other, um, treatment programs that maybe would benefit them. But, uh, yeah, so we've had amazing guests. We have guests on that have, you know, really interviewed some of these, uh, big food companies and some of the truths behind that. We've had people on who have, you know, doing that kind of rat cocaine study where they said like they gave the coke uh, rats option of uh, sugar water or cocaine and the rats actually chose sugar water over the cocaine. So we've had some incredible guests and um now I, I work with another colleague and we have a, a online community platform called Sweet Sobriety, where we just do group coaching around food addiction and, and help to answer people's questions and, and help them to get their lives back. Really. And that's all free. 
So that's uh it's $25 a month. Um okay. but they but it's five groups a week. So essentially if they attend to all the groups, it's like one dollar group because all of the treatment, because food addiction is not recognized yet, it is people can charge whatever they want. And some of the colleagues out there in the field are just it's it's really gross what they charge for. And it's we wanted to be like inclusive and we wanted to be accessible. So it's really important for us. And we did, we just uh, published a research paper where we did a 10 week intervention on individuals just doing some psychoeducation around food addiction and um, using like a low carbohydrate kind of food plan and their food addiction symptoms went down. Their body mass index went down, which for us, we don't care about the weight, but the world cares about the weight and uh, their level of well-being went up. So I just really, I, I was excited to be on here uh, to be able to share that, like, you know, if, if you're still listening and you're still struggling, like maybe food could be another avenue for you to explore that could enhance your sobriety. Well, the good old fashioned saying, you are what you eat. Right. I know when I eat healthier, I feel better, but it's, it's, it's hard to eat healthy sometimes because there's just, you go to the supermarket, like 5% of everything is healthy. Like it's right. That's right. what you feel and, like. You feel like everything and, you pick up, not healthy, pick up another thing, look at the ingredients, not healthy, not healthy. Yeah. And that's it. Right. It's like, I have really transitioned and I work with people to really just try, try to get them like eating less out of a box and more like real food. And, and it's unfortunate, like they, they've made food so accessible and convenient that people don't even really have cooking classes. Kids don't have cooking classes anymore. So we lose the art of like sitting down, enjoying a meal together. And so really trying to work with people to like bring that back, be a little bit more mindful about their eating and just be able to see that some of these foods out there for some of us who have that predisposition um, to addiction, these foods can, we can be using them just like drugs and that our lives can get better if we just, we don't have to eat these foods. And then there's people out there choosing not to, and that, and that's okay. Yeah. So you got some story there. Yeah. It's like you've been through a lot. <laughs> so your main addiction is food. So what do you do nowadays to keep yourself sober? What What's like a, a routine for you? So I, I focus on, I really eat only real food. So that's like any kind of meat, any kind of vegetables, like, you know, I'll have grains, uh, you know, um, I eat healthy fats. So maybe that's like olive oil, but I get outside, I wake up, I work out. I now I'm a food addiction counselor, so I can kind of set my schedule. So I'm, I, I did last year start attending Workaholics Anonymous because I got all, a few too many projects on the go. And so, again, it's like that whack-a-mole, right? Like when one addiction, I treat one addiction, something else pops up if it's like yeah. not screens or whatever. So workaholism could be an outlet for me. Um, so I have tried to slow things down a lot more. And I get outside, I spend time with my partner, 
uh we do like cold plunges uh we're really into like sauna cold plunges i lead recovery group meetings i have uh, still uh, my own therapist that i do work with and i spend a lot of time in my recovery community which is now who i consider my people your peeps yeah, exactly. Cause they understand it. Like, so I'll get like a ton of pictures that like, we just went through Christmas and new year's and people are just sending me like, look at what my family's eating right now. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like in this world, even grandma's a drug pusher, right? When she's like, Oh, you can just have a little. With- yeah. Just have a cookie, just, a, just yeah. a cookie, your skin and bones, you know, <laughs> good old fashioned saying, eat, eat your skin and bones. Meanwhile, you're like 30 pounds overweight. Exactly. Because it's like when you're trying to not do alcohol and drugs, people are like really supportive. But food is kind of like politics for some reason. And if you say like, oh, I'm just trying not to eat sugar. And then people are like, why? That's not healthy. You're being really restrictive. Well, why is it if I put down alcohol, I'm not being restrictive? People are like, whoa, yeah, that's a smart choice. If these foods make me feel unwell and I feel like I experience loss of control when I have them, I should be allowed to not eat them if I if they are not serving me. I still find that so interesting. I've never heard of your food addiction triggering alcoholism. Which it makes sense. It's like you said, cross addiction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, and I certainly do have many um clients that I work with where alcoholism was what they believe they had the whole time. And and that is how many years ago when I shared my story before I found out about food addiction, I, that's what I said. And, and I, I still believe that I have a substance use disorder, you know, and none of that has changed. Um, but I really feel like as long as I keep my food in check, then the other, uh, substances, they don't come up. I don't have cravings. I don't get triggered. I just feel like food is medicine and or food can be poison if we're eating the wrong kinds of foods or we're restricting yeah so my last question for you before we wrap this up is do you have any advice for people watching and listening so if you think that food may be something that you struggle with, there is uh, resources out there. We have many on our own website, which is like www.sweetsobriety.ca. There is, you can listen to our podcast, um, start from episode one, where we share our stories. There's And, it, and there's no one way to recover. I really encourage people that to find their own way. If 12 step isn't working for you, try something else, but never, I hate the word relapse. I believe like, I like to frame it in a positive way that you are a a chronic never giver upper and you just keep trying, right? There's going to be all of these uh, slips or pauses we have in our recovery journey are just growth and learning opportunities. And we are getting always closer to our journey to ideal. And as long as you keep showing up and keep trying, um, you'll amazing things can happen there. There is no reason I should be here today because there is very many times in many ways, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, I, I tried to kill myself. Um, and days I woke up where I didn't want to live. And today I wouldn't change a thing. 
And I'm so grateful that, you know, this, this life has brought me to here where it is today. That's great. Well, thank I also you. need to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great interview, I think. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel, I always feel lighter once I share, you yes. know, and yes. I hope it helps someone. That's, that's the biggest, uh, that's the biggest gift. I feel mm -hmm. that recovery gives us is hope. Great. Did you have anything else you want to throw in? No, I just want to thank you so much for having this show. No, absolutely. I do it so people like you can get your stories out. And like I said, or like you said, I should say, hopefully someone hears this and they can relate to it, get some information, find a way out. Absolutely. Fun fact, it's saying the way out, that was one of the original concepts, concept names for the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way out. Really? Or there's also, or there is a way out, something like that. But when they looked it up in the Library of Congress, there had been a couple books named that already. And there were no books named Alcoholics Anonymous. So they chose Alcoholics Anonymous because it was 100% original. Okay. Yeah. It is, that is interesting. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, random fact. I remember reading that. Yeah. But uh, let's wrap this up. So do me a favor, sit tight. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, Go below and give us a like. Also subscribe so you can see when we upload new videos. You can also check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, TikTok, Tumblr, Instagram. You name it, we're probably on it. I also suggest for information, checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of free resources and literature. Um, we also have a book coming out. I'm hoping to have it out by mid to late February. It's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. I'll keep you updated on the release date for that. So that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time.